All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Indeed, We should give thanks to the Lord and glorify Him for all that He has done, that we might worship Him truly in a way that honors Him. Let's join our hearts together asking for His help in a moment of silent prayer. Father, hear the prayer of your servants and cause our worship to be pleasing and honoring to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love. Be yours in abundance. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 483 in our Psalter hymnal. 483. confess the Lord this evening using the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find that on page 582 in the back of your uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 580, I'm sorry, 852. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, 
the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again from according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our psalm reading this evening is Psalm 121. I mentioned last week this is one of the psalms of ascent. So these are songs that God's people would sing as they were on their way up to Jerusalem. They're pilgrim songs. Songs of people who are traveling, who are on their way to the place of worship. And as God's people were doing that, as they came toward Jerusalem, they came through the wilderness of Judea. And when they looked at those approaching hills and mountains, they saw adversity and threat. Adversity in that, you know, it's a lot easier to walk down a nice level path than it is a mountain trail. But also those mountain trails held all manner of danger. Right? That's where robbers, that's where ne'er do wells would hide to harm. But not only for the individual traveler, even, even for the collected people. If an approaching army was seeking to attack and destroy your city, they wouldn't come across the open plain. No, they would get as close as they can by shielding their movement from sight, by coming behind that hill, behind that mountain. So when the psalmist looks to the mountains, looks over and sees the hills, he's seeing the possibility of the unknown threat. He doesn't even know what's coming. How can you prepare when you don't know what's out there? But God does. And that's really the theme of this psalm. We don't know what awaits us. We can't even prepare For the danger that might loom. But God not only knows. He has the power to overcome it for us. And so if we are to have comfort. If we are to have confidence. If we are to have rest. In this life. Or even for eternity. It has to be by looking to the Lord. We can keep our eyes on those hills. We can keep our eyes on all the unknowns. And just worry ourselves to death. Or we can keep our eyes on the Lord who already knows what's coming and we can have confidence. So the psalmist writes and we confess, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us sing that song of comfort, that confession of confidence from selection 260 in our Psalter hymnal. We'll sing all the stanzas of 260. As we come before the Lord in prayer, just um, one reminder uh, in our announcement bulletin, we're asked to be in prayer for Reverend Pablo Landasari, the church planter in Quito, Ecuador. Um, On the one hand, things have been amazing in Ecuador. Doors have opened. Um, Matter of fact, their biggest problem is finding men to lead the church as elders or to be trained to be ministers. Um, There are multitudes eager to hear the gospel. The downside is the reason that they're so eager to hear the gospel is because of all the instability in the country. Um, There is a a lot of political instability. Uh, There's quite a threat of what has been a fairly stable government becoming more of a socialist tyranny. So uh, we need to pray for their peace and well-being, but also praise the Lord for the openings that it has brought for the gospel. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we are surrounded by the unknown. When we look about us, We have to confess that we don't know what the future holds. And if we look at the headlines in the newspaper, Lord, if we look at the the threats that loom, the possibilities that present themselves, well, it leads us to tremble. But we confess that you, who made the heavens and the earth, you who know all things, And do all things for the good of your people. You hold it all in your hand. Father, we thank you. That you have given us the comfort of knowing you. And of being able to trust you as our Heavenly Father. And we pray that you would strengthen the faith of your people. So that no matter what we face. Whether political instability. Whether disease or betrayal, whether joy and prosperity or hardship and woe, 
Enable us to face it all with our eyes upon you, Lord. Trusting that you have it all in hand. That you will use it all for our good. And that you will preserve, preserve us unto everlasting life. Father, we are struck by the situation in Ecuador. Since you allowed your servant Pablo to be sent to Quito, you have opened many doors, provided many opportunities, brought forth much fruit from the gospel. You have caused men to be raised up to be trained as ministers and others to uh, serve the church as elders. You have made many eager to hear the gospel, uh, even to the point of opening new church plants. But yet, we look at the situation in Ecuador, the rising tyranny, the political instability, the deaths, the inflation. And we confess that we don't know what the future holds. We fear for our brothers and sisters in that place and for their well-being. But our fear is only on the surface, Lord. Because we know that you remain on the throne and that you are entirely good. We pray that you would provide the comfort and the confidence that the saints in Ecuador crave and that you would continue to bring forth the fruit of the gospel in the salvation and transformation of lives, in the confession of your good salvation, in the worship of the church and in the spread of the gospel. And Father, we pray the same for our own land, which is so filled increasingly with division, with opposition, with the advance and the proclamation of ungodly worldviews. In the midst of all that, and we grieve it, Lord, we grieve the number of folks who are leading our nation from positions of power and influence who don't know you and advance a worldview that is contrary to you. We grieve how the government schools in our land have increasingly been teaching curricula that are, are opposed, not just ignoring you, but opposed to you. But we know that you are able to use even this for the good of your church, for the spread of your kingdom. And so we pray that you would teach your saints here in America to trust in you, to believe confidently that you have all things in your hand and to worship you even in the midst of that instability. Lord, we have the opportunity this week to welcome into our walls a multitude of children that we might teach them the truth of the gospel and urge them to trust in you for their help and their salvation and their day-to-day -day security. Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to teach them well. That you would give us joy in the task that they might see the joy of your salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one whom you draw here. Indeed, cause their, their fathers and mothers, even now, to be eager to bring their children in, to hear the word, and cause that word to root deeply in their hearts, that it might bring forth fruit thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. Lord, we pray that you would also bless those who are going on task, that they might be renewed in their devotion and their desire to use their gifts and their abilities in service to you and grant that through their labors those who receive help might get a glimpse of your perfect fatherly care. Lord, we pray that you would multiply the opportunities that you give us here at Grace and in your church throughout the land 
to bring forth the gospel, to lay, to prepare the ground for the gospel through our deeds, through our love, through our relationships, but then to proclaim boldly and broadly who you are and what you've done and how desperately we stand in need of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of many in this world who don't yet know you so that they do and so that they have that comfort that no one can snatch away from them. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are dwelling in the midst of persecution, for those in the Middle East who are always threatened by the evil of Islam and its jealous false god, that you would make them to stand firm and to proclaim boldly despite the threat against them. And for those who are in communist lands like China and North Korea, that despite the threat of an ungodly state which seeks to sit upon the throne, that they might worship you, that they might share with their neighbors the truth of the true King of Kings who is infinitely greater than the state ever could be. For those who dwell in the midst of radical secularism, such as has taken over Europe and is slowly taking over our own land, we pray, Lord, that you would give them fervor for serving you, for knowing you, for professing you, so that no matter how you are slandered, no matter how your people are marginalized, they might come Proclaiming the truth, declaring your goodness, expressing their comfort. And Lord, bless us here at Grace. Give us eyes to see the opportunities that you have provided for us so that we might reach out to our neighbors and our co workers, so that we might befriend those who are lost and alone, so that we might confess the truth of our hope to those who are eager to hear, and also so that we might disciple and love and train up these children that you have placed among us, leading them to know and to love you by your Spirit's work through and among us. Father, grant that each one of us might express our faith in a powerful and living way, not taking for granted our relationship with you, but day by day by day, through your Spirit's work within us, casting off the old man with its fleshly desires, with its momentary focus, and taking up the new life in Christ, which turns our hearts unto you, which causes us to look for the coming of Christ and to be eager for that which is held in eternity, storing up treasures not here on earth but in heaven. And so, Lord, use us to bring glory and honor unto you. Please be with all of those who stand in need of your particular care because of medical ailments, because of travel, because of strife within their lives. Help them to find the strength and the hope that they need from you. Lord, we thank you for the rain that is falling and for how it nourishes the ground. We pray that you would bless the crops that are coming forth, that they might both provide for our farmers and for our land and stand as a living reminder to us that you are the one who provides our daily bread. Now all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to stand and or to, to consider together God's word uh, concerning the third commandment, that third commandment, it calls us to put God and his honor first and foremost in our hearts. Psalm 15 does the same thing. It asks, who can approach the Lord? Who can draw near to Him? And then it points, not to the things that we do, but to the faith that permeates our lives and makes it evident that our hope and our strength and our confidence lie not in us, 
but in the Lord whose image we bear. So let's, as we prepare to look to God's word, let's sing God's word from Selection 20 in our Psalter hymnal. Selection 20, Psalm 15. catechism reading this evening is Lord's Day 37, but before we turn to that, I'd like to read with you two brief passages, and each of these passages, uh, starting with Proverbs 12 and then Deuteronomy 23, each of these emphasize truth, the importance, the godliness of speaking truth, and on the other hand, the danger of and the certain judgment that comes with speaking the lie. So looking first at Proverbs 12, starting in verse 17, going through verse 22. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Turning back then, to Deuteronomy 23, we consider three verses, verse 21, 22, and 23. Moses declares in verse 21, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord will, your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Keep that in mind. You have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, Lord's Day 37 in our catechism comes back to that third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who, or you shall not. Sorry, 
I just lost it. <laughs> you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. And Lord's Day 37 asks, May we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Kids, what does reverently mean? Short answer is that means seriously, right? For a good reason, with good intention. We're not doing it lightly. Is it okay to swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? The answer is yes. When the government demands it, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or by other things? No. A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are few things more precious and few things more rare in this world than the telling of the whole uncompromised truth. The Greek philosopher Aeschylus said, In war, truth is the first casualty. But the reality is, truth is the first casualty of sin. Satan convinced our first parents to sin by doing what? By telling them a lie, a very subtle but a very powerful lie. When the Pharisees questioned the truth of what Jesus said, he explained their unwillingness to believe by pointing out that they were children of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Sin is always born of untruth, of lies. And sin always brings forth deception and lies. So it should come as no surprise that God's law extols the truth and condemns the lie, and it does so at least twice. When we think of the sin of telling a lie, we typically think of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that command does indeed condemn lies. But long before we get to the ninth commandment, we come to the third commandment, you shall not misuse or take in vain the name of the Lord your God. You see, our God is truth. He is the living truth in whom no lie can be found. His word, says 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, is the essence of truth. The truth from God both saves us and sets us free, Jesus says. Truth is part of God's nature. It is inherent to God's name. And all who despise the truth while claiming God's name misuse His name in the most grievous way. And therefore, the first commandment that calls us to honesty and truth is this third commandment, which we consider again this evening. Last week, we considered this commandment to see how God's grateful people honor His holy name. This evening, what we're doing is considering a major application of that commandment, as we see how God's grateful people ask God to attest to their honesty. And when they're doing that, what we're really doing is confessing that our God is the essence of truth, that our God is the defender of truth, and that we're going to confess Him, we're going to live before Him in the truth. God's grateful people ask God to attest to their honesty, to their truthfulness. And that involves two things, which are reflected in the last question and answer of Lord's Day 37. We're first of all calling on God as our omniscient, our all-knowing witness, but at the same time we're confessing God as our perfect judge. So let's look at that knowledge of God first of all. When we ask Him to attest to our honesty, we're calling on God as our omniscient, our all-knowing witness. What we need to remember here is that our God loves truth. We see that most clearly in the person of Jesus. God who became man. Jesus is the living embodiment of truth. What did He confess about Himself? John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. He came to God's people speaking the truth that he received from the Father. And that's why the leaders of the Jews hated him. Because at root they hated the truth. They had created this religion that was based around their tradition that was meant to buttress their power, their influence, their leadership. And Jesus comes, not bowing to them, not giving deference to their tradition, but proclaiming the truth, and they hated that. But here's the thing, you cannot hate the truth without also hating God. Because God is the living embodiment of the truth. And so if you love God, if you belong to God, then you will love the truth of God. That's why Jesus never lied. He loved God too much to ever embrace a lie. That's why Jesus taught us the truth will set you free. If we belong to Him, then we will love the truth, we will have been freed by the truth, and we will find the truth in Christ. So Jesus commended the truth to us. He said in John 8, Whoever is of God willingly hears the truth of God. In Matthew 5, he taught the disciples, those who loved him must speak his truth. To speak the truth is to demonstrate the love of God. What did we read in in Proverbs 12, verse 18? The tongue of the wise brings healing. Just as God brings healing for all who receive him by faith, the one who is truly wise, the one who is in Christ, brings healing by speaking that which is true, by speaking that which leads to God. But on the other hand, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Whoever speaks rashly, whoever speaks falsely, whoever speaks what is a lie, they use their words to destroy rather than to bring life. Now now that brings us to what we speak in service to the truth. In Matthew 5, Jesus urged his disciples to not swear oaths at all. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Now, we need to understand a few definitions. First of all, swearing. When the Bible uses the term swearing, it's not talking about using naughty words. It's talking about testifying that you are speaking the truth and you're calling on God as witness that what you're saying is true. So when you swear an oath, you're asking God to testify that what you're speaking is true. When you swear a vow, you're asking God to testify that what you promise to do, you will do. Now when Jesus said what he said in Matthew 5, he was countering a sinful practice that had risen up in the tradition of the Jews. They knew that it was wicked to use God's name to attest to a lie. And so they would swear by something less than God, thinking that was less of a sin. They would swear by heaven or by earth. They would swear by Jerusalem or by their own life. They felt that, eh, you know, if they weren't entirely truthful then, God would maybe turn a blind eye, or at least he wouldn't demand too much of them. Folks do the same thing today. They swear by the life of a loved one. They swear on the grave of someone they loved. They swear on their own life. Cross my heart and hope to die. Little children do it all the time. But Jesus said, no, don't do that. That's deceptive. It's the embrace of a lie. God's people, as the people of the God of truth, should simply speak the truth. Don't willy-nilly take all these oaths to testify to the truthfulness. No, you belong to the God of truth, speak the truth. If you mean yes, then say yes. If you mean no, then say no, and leave it at that. Because we belong to the God of truth, we should speak the truth without compromise. No crossing our fingers. No trying to skirt around on a technicality. However, that does not mean... See, what he was countering there was this idea that we can skirt around, that we can make the truth a gray thing, a a thing that can be molded a little bit. Jesus said no. 
speak the truth. But what he says there does not mean that we can't swear an oath or a vow. Some people do believe that's what it means. They won't uh, take a vow in court because of what Jesus said. They won't serve in government because they won't vow to uphold the Constitution. But that's not what Jesus was intending. We know that because of what else the Bible shows us. Always we interpret Scripture by Scripture. We have to interpret every passage by all the others, right? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, God's people clearly are called to use oaths. For instance, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, we're told that we should fear God, we should serve God, and by His name you shall swear. So it is acceptable to swear an oath, but only if we do so in the name of the Lord, and only if we do so in service to the truth. Likewise, Deuteronomy 23, as we heard, instructs about taking vows. On the one hand, we're told that if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. There's no sin in saying, I'm not going to swear. But on the other hand, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not delay in fulfilling it. Which means you may use vows, but only if you fully and completely intend to keep them. And we find examples of that throughout the Bible. In 2 Chronicles 15 is a beautiful example. King Asa presided over God's people at a time when they had fallen into complacency. They weren't worshiping God faithfully. They were living and acting in the way of the people around them. They had just failed to uphold the holiness of God. And so he gathered them together and he led them in worship. He reminded them of the high and holy calling that we have to worship God honorably, passionately. And then he called on them to make a vow before the Lord that they would put aside their worldliness, that they would put aside their half-heartedness, that they would worship God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and furthermore, that anyone who refused would be put to death. This was a serious vow. And God blessed them. God delighted in them because of their vow. But that's not just an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul spoke several oaths recorded in Scripture in places like Galatians 1 verse 20 or 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23. The Apostle, or God himself took oaths. In Genesis 22, he vowed that he would bless Abraham and he would make him to be a blessing for all the nations. Isaiah 45 verse 23, he swore by himself that before him every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. We even find Jesus taking an oath in God's name. As he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, the high priest put him under oath to testify to whether he was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And taking that oath before God, he attested to the fact that yes, he was in fact the promised Messiah. So it's clear that at times it is acceptable to swear an oath or a vow before God. Even Jesus himself, who said, don't swear by heaven or by earth or by your... Even Jesus took an oath at the appropriate time. But he did not, and we must not, do so lightly. When you swear, taking an oath or a vow, you call on God's name to attest to your truthfulness. As we heard last week, God's name should never be used lightly to swear in His name for some frivolous reason while you're joking with your friends, attesting to the truth of something that's utterly insignificant. To do that is blasphemy. So we must not swear in God's name just because we want to impress our friends or just in the course of a common conversation. We must only do so when God's glory is at stake or when we need to do it to uphold the truth of something serious. Our catechism points out three very concrete reasons for why we would swear. The first is when the government demands it. Government is God's servant appointed by God to bring wrath against wrongdoers. That's true by definition. Even when the governor himself doesn't acknowledge the truth of God, he's still God's servant. And in that calling to punish those who are guilty and to uphold those who are doing what is right, 
the government faces a difficult challenge because they don't know the heart of a person and because they're often judging situations where they weren't present. And so causing men to swear an oath, attesting to the truthfulness of what they say, is a useful way of calling upon God as the one who knows the heart, upon God as the one who knows the truth. Testifying, as we'll see in a minute, if you're lying, God knows. So when the government requires it, we ought to diligent, or we ought to swear, either with an oath to tell the whole truth or with a vow saying that we'll do what we promise to do. A second legitimate use of swearing in God's name is to maintain and promote the truth. That was the purpose of Jesus' oath before the high priest. If you read that account in, uh, for instance, Matthew 26, you'll see that Jesus skirts the issue. He really, he doesn't skirt it, he just doesn't say anything about whether he is or is not the Messiah until he is put under oath because he knew that they would doubt him. He knew that they would utterly scorn and deny what he was saying. So he waits until he has been put under oath before God. And whatever he says is said before God as the knower of all hearts and the seer of all that is hidden. And then he attests to the fact that he is in fact the promised Messiah. At such times when significant matters are at stake, it is appropriate to take an oath before God to, to demonstrate that it is in fact the truth being told that's being told. And a third legitimate use of swearing in God's name is to maintain and promote trustworthiness. People often dislike or are offended by the truth. And so they want to deny it. They want to pretend that it's not so. Sometimes it's hard for people to believe a promise. Maybe you've let them down in the past. You've not upheld your promise. They don't believe you. Or maybe they think it's too good to be true. It's in such situations that an oath or a vow can promote trustworthiness in a way that glorifies God. Now listen, never should we take such a step lightly. But when the matter is significant, when the truth is at stake, God's people should not hesitate to swear an oath or a vow to attest to truth. And when we do swear in God's name, the truth will be upheld because of him in whom we swear it. Swearing rightly requires calling on God as our omniscient witness. Remember, a witness is someone who knows. They know what has happened. They know what is true. And omniscient, kids, that's a big word, but you know what it means? It means God knows everything, right? God's the one who knows absolutely everything that has occurred or will occur. He even knows what we think in our hearts. That's helpful. Because we often can't know the whole truth. We only see one portion of the truth, or we can't see all of the factors that are involved in the truth. But God does. Proverbs 12, verse 20, told us that deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, and we can't see inside the heart to see if there's deceit there, but God can. And so Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2 God says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. God is in heaven. He sees all things. He knows all things. There is nothing hidden from Him. So whatever we say before Him, He knows whether it's true or a lie. When we call on Him, we're calling on the One who knows, and to whom we will answer. And that's our second point. You see, as a witness, God's testimony is perfect. But if God only is a witness, then his testimony would lack power. Because when's the last time you saw God show up in a courtroom? If we can't hear his testimony, what good is it? The power of swearing in God's name lies in the fact that he is not only the perfect witness, he also is the perfect and most reliable judge. And so that's our second point. We're confessing God as our perfect judge. When you swear in God's name, please understand what you're doing, how significant that is. 
A godly oath or a vow really does two things. It calls on God to witness to whether what you've done, what you've said is true. But it also calls on God to judge the one who speaks or promises falsely. And that's not a light thing. Remember who this God is. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He is just. You can't convince Him to do what is wrong. You can't ever expect Him to pardon the one who is guilty. His justice is an awesome thing. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the ruler of all nations, the knower of all hearts, the one who spoke and the sea separated. The one who will declare and all of mankind will gather before His judgment throne. Those who call on this God and do good, great shall be their reward. What did we hear in Proverbs 12? No ill befalls the righteous. Why? Because God cares for them. Verse 22 says, um, those who act faithfully are his delight. And therefore, verse 20, those who plan peace have joy. In other words, those who speak the truth and do it, God will delight in them. God will bless them. But on the other hand, Verse 21, the wicked are filled with trouble. Verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And therefore, verse 19, the lying tongue is but for a moment. Because God will cut it off. Because God will judge it. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. He will require justice for your evil. And that justice He will obtain pouring out His divine wrath on those who swear falsely. And when God pours forth His justice against a person, well, that's unthinkable. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4, He says, He has no pleasure in fools. And a fool is what one is who thinks he can get away with calling on God while telling a lie. And therefore Solomon warns, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And that's what happens when you swear falsely before God. You see, our oaths and vows confess God as the judge who is faithful. To confess that about God and then to tell a lie or to promise what you don't intend to keep. Understand, that's the equivalent of daring God to judge you. If you swear to something that is false, if you promise something that you don't intend to do, you're either saying that you don't believe that God exists or that you don't believe that God will uphold the truth. And so you're demanding that He judge you. Truly, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Far better to follow the counsel of Jesus. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Or James, in chapter 5 of James, Above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. But when we swear in God's name, we also say something about us, about our faith. When we swear rightly as Christians, when we swear a vow, and then we do what we promise to do, when we swear an oath, and it testifies to our truthfulness, we're saying, I believe that God judges justly and so I will act righteously before Him. That's the confession of a godly person, a person who belongs to God in Christ. Psalm 24 asks, who, much like Psalm 15, which we just recently sang, says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? And it answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Notice what goes together there. Clean hands and a pure heart. The one who does what is right. The one who desires what is true. 
Our words and our deeds must support one another and together they must confirm we belong to God. Such a man whose words and deeds confirm that he belongs to God, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But woe to that man who swears falsely before God, the one who vows and does not do, the one who swears an oath yet tells a lie. Such a man will answer to God, both for his dishonesty and for the blasphemy of using God's name in service to falsehood. Because that blasphemy shows something ugly. It shows that we think that we can get one over on God. Or that we don't think God will ever hold us accountable. And that cannot go unpunished. Beloved, we must consider well the significance, the weightiness of swearing. Wisely does Solomon tell us in Ecclesiastes 5, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not do. Because when you swear an oath or a vow, God says, as we heard in Deuteronomy 23, You have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Our God is the living embodiment of truth. He loves truth and He will guard it well. So here's the warning of the third commandment. If you do not share God's love of the truth, you must not swear before God at all. And I pray that describes no one in this room. But understand that anyone who is outside of Christ, anyone who does not truly trust in Him, inherently they love the lie. They can't not, because otherwise they can't sleep at night. Right? If they truly believe the truth, which surrounds them in the creation, which they hear every time God's Word is proclaimed, Well, then they're surrounded by the evidence of their impending judgment and doom. So they have to love the lie. It's the only way they can live with themselves. But if you belong to Christ, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, then you must love the truth. You must cherish the truth and you must preserve the truth. And if you do, then your whole life will be oriented around the truth. That doesn't mean, by the way, we have to call a spade a spade. We have to say whatever's on our mind about whatever person is in front of us. We can still be loving and love the truth. But it does mean that we will not speak what is false. We will not promise what we don't intend to do. We will not testify to something that we don't know to be a fact. And if we're constantly loving the truth, then when someone doubts it or when the matter is weighty, we will willingly swear before God, calling on Him to testify that we're speaking the truth or that our promise is good, knowing that He sees everything we do, that He knows the truth of our hearts, and that if we are false, He will judge us. And brothers and sisters, if you do that, Not only do you not use God's name wrongly, but you uphold the holiness, the justice, the truth, and the trustworthiness of God in a way that brings Him great honor. So let us vow sparingly. Let us take oaths only when necessary. But when it is necessary, let us not hesitate to ask God to attest to our honesty, knowing that the God of truth will not fail. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth. That you will uphold what is right and what is good. And that at the end, We will stand before you and you will reveal the truth that you have known all along. Make us, Father, to be upholders of the truth, defenders of the truth, and indeed lovers of the truth. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Beloved, in response, let us stand and sing from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 400, asking for God's help, God's sanctifying work, to cause us always to to love and to speak the truth and to do what is right in God's sight. Number 400 of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. this evening is for Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have raised up this institution to train men to proclaim your word. We pray that you would cause their labors at Mid-America to be faithful and true. That you would indeed use that institution to raise up men well prepared and well grounded in your truth. And that you would thus bless and provide for your church. Bless our offering, that it might bring honor and glory to you, testifying to our gratitude for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 109, number 109 from our Psalter hymnal.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.